0: Hey everyone, welcome to The Theory Behind It, a music theory podcast covering music theory pedagogy, philosophies, and social aspects.
1: Livy, Seth, and Adam met during our graduate degrees, and we became really good friends. Our studies focused on music theory, music education, voice, wind instruments, and piano, which gives us a diverse perspective
2: fall semester. The podcast is going to produce a few episodes, including interviews, topic discussions, and conference reviews.
0: On to session one, music theory and the imposter syndrome. Hello, and welcome to the show.
2: This week, we're going to try out a new segment to start the show called Helpful or Not Helpful where we're going to discuss new ideas or new tools that we discovered for teaching and we're going to decide if they are helpful or not helpful. So Seth what did you want to share with us this week?
0: So I learned about Chrome Music Lab this past spring and it's created a lot of new teaching opportunities in my elementary classroom. Um, On Chrome Music Lab, you can explore a variety of basic music theory concepts, such as melody, pitch, rhythm, sound waves, harmonies, and a lot more. So, specifically, in the song maker section, you can create melodies using major pentatonic and chromatic scales. The notes are color-coded the same way that boomwhacker instruments are, and can easily be associated with solfege, because those boomwhacker instruments a lot of times are, like, Okay, red is for doe, Ray is orange, me is yellow, and they stick to the same color pattern. Sometimes it's a different brand, but generally they've agreed with, like, that color scheme. Um, So I was wondering, for you guys, do you guys think that we could use this in some way in, like, beginning either oral skills or music theory, uh, where somebody may have had, like, a very specific instrument that they were good at like maybe somebody was very very good at the clarinet but that didn't necessarily mean that in their time during high school band they got a bunch of like music foundation listening skills and then that's what we're asking them to do
2: so i have a tiny bit of experience with chrome music lab i don't remember it super super well but what i do remember um i'm not sure how i would incorporate it into an undergraduate classroom Um, At least not the type of undergraduate classroom that we've all taught in for music majors, maybe like a music appreciation or something like that, I could see. Um, But the way that I was using Chrome Music Lab before was in a high school music appreciation class, and it worked great for them. So these were kids that didn't have really any um, steady musical background. They weren't in band or choir or anything. They were just in music appreciation as an elective. And so it was a really fun way to get them involved with the concepts of pitch and melody without having to read sheet music or play an instrument. And they actually really enjoyed it. So it was really great for that.
0: Yeah, that's that's awesome. So I guess in a similar way, uh, Sarah and I are working on like some similar uses to incorporate like for general music on like the college side uh, Mm -hmm. where she's teaching just because somebody that's never had a music class and coming from like a rural background or something where there may not have been Mm -hmm. electives teachers on campus. It's hard to just explain like, yep, this is what melody is and you should recognize that all the time onto like this Bach fugue and then you get lost. Mm-hmm. So, Adam, any thoughts?
1: I got distracted because I just started playing around with it. This is really cool. That's oh, have,
0: have you not looked at Chrome? Music no, I've never before? looked at it before. Oh, okay. This is great. I like
1: this.
2: Yeah. yeah, so... It's really fun, especially for younger kids, like, who are just now learning about this stuff.
1: I might have a future in this. I don't know. Like, I'm, I just sort of came <laughs> up with a little bit of a bop.
0: It's really um, fun. Well, so just to talk about it for a little bit while Adam continues to play around and use his thoughts I've done things where um in SongMaker you can go into the settings and expand the range to three octaves with the idea being that you're not writing a melody that's three octaves wide but if you do that you can write your own harmonies underneath Mm. and so you could show students simple things of like here's how you stack a harmony like, you have a note, you skip a note, have a note, skip a note, have a note. And it's, like, that's a basic triad for us. And then kind of get them used to, like, making that. Even though it's they're not using actual note, like, music notation that we're used to. If that makes sense. So, like, that was one yeah. way that they could get used to, like, stacking the chord. And then you still have to go back later. I guess maybe, Livy, this is what you're talking about, of, like... You could still teach a basic concept, mm-hmm. but then when you ask them like, "Okay, yes, you can write your like four chord in C major, but can you also write a four chord in A flat major?" That then if they freak out like, you know, you can't add flats and stuff in this, you mm-hmm. could still get the concept of like, "Okay, I have a note, skip a note, have a note, skip a Like, there's my triad. Uh, but I was this wondering. seems a
1: lot more geared towards like a like a just a digital production sort of deal because when you look at some of like the the DAWs or the re- recording software that people are using now, it, it has like not the notation thing, sort of the thing you're talking about, like the notes are stacked on top of each other. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know what that like sort of notation is called. So that's the only thing I think that it's it's definitely definitely geared more towards sort of that digital production, and it's missing what we would consider to be like regular western music notation and so as far as like using it in like a college course or like an oral skills class i I, you'd have to be able to like read both of these and understand these and a lot of times we're trying to push students to get better at reading western music notation got you so there just might be like a conflict of, of interest or how you spend your time there um that's not a bad thing though and i think that our, our students should get a lot better at, at using these sort of DAWs and, and music production, stuff like that. Like that's something I can improve at. Yeah. It's like this a different style of notation. That's just a good tool to have.
0: What do you think about, um, like if you wrote out a simple melody, like Mary had a little lamb and uh, you know, everything's in quarter notes because a lot of our beginning oral skill stuff is also in quarter notes. Like, you're not trying to write a complex rhythm, but you are kind of getting them to hear stepwise motion and other things like that. And then like the first homework was just eliminating one of like notes from the melody. And so there was like, you know what the melody sounds like. Can you kind of like visually follow what's supposed to happen? Do you think that's like maybe a remediation kind of a thing of like, if a student came to you and asked, Hey, is <laughs> did you send us your bop? Yeah, I did. It's really good. <laughs> All right. Well, if anybody's interested in Adam's bop, we will, you know, probably post it along with the episode. Or you could
1: just play it right now. I'm, I'm not not trying to self-promote like that, but
0: not trying to. Okay, let's let's see. <laughs> I don't know where it's gonna open though. Is the problem? All right. I don't think it's gonna let me do that.
1: Oh, never. Oh, wait, wait. Here, here. I got it. I got it. You got I it. Know what to
0: do. I know what to do. Okay, guys. We are all waiting. There, now
1: you can just click on it in the Google Doc. <laughs>
0: well, you didn't make it a link.
1: I don't know how to do that, my man.
0: Uh, <laughs> Right click? Hell yeah. All right. I'm going to hit play. Hopefully, this comes through. It is copyrighted, so no, no. If you just heard, that's that, actually don't a new podcast it. theme
1: song.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: don't don't tempt us, Adam. Um, but as a remediation tool, like somebody comes to you after the first oral skills quiz or test or something, and they're just having trouble grasping some basic things, do you think this could help? Like, okay, hey, try this right quick.
2: I think that that off the top of my head is kind of one of the only ways I could think of really incorporating it in like a traditional oral skills or theory class would be at that very 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 fundamental level and kind of as a way to just get the basic building blocks to click and then I think the way you could like really use it to its full potential would be in a class that isn't geared towards that sort of standard western notation like more of a general class where you could just encourage students to just make music however
0: yeah um, more of an emphasis on just listen and enjoy it mm-hmm. and not you have to write this notation this very specific way
2: yeah. like students that aren't music students are probably not going to be motivated to go compose on some staff paper but like I think that just in general digital music is a lot more appealing and so you could definitely encourage people to do this, but then you could also go the route of, if it does catch the interest of your class, um, once they've gotten in using um, the lab and they've made some little pieces that they like, you could get more technical and talk about why you like them. You could say like, okay, so we did it using just the visuals, Mm -hmm. but now let's break down like what the actual rhythm is, what the actual harmonies are.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You
2: could go that route too where you introduce just this in like a traditional fundamentals class and then you use it to lead into the more standard topics.
0: So but, so generally it sounds like on the verdict of helpful not helpful, we are saying if you're doing general music, music appreciation or something, this is a helpful tool but it's going to be extremely limited and a more, I guess, rigorous uh, notation-focused class.
2: Probably. I would just say thoroughly helpful, though. Like, the fact that it's just available for everyone. Yeah. such a cool resource to just be there because you can always come up with things, things that we're not even thinking of now. You'll be like, oh, I could do that on that Google website.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's there for everyone. Wait, is it a Google website? I don't see anything about Google on it.
2: Oh, did I make that up? No, on the oh, front it is page built by you're... Google Creative yeah. Lab. Okay, that's what Google, I thought.
1: Google. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's that's also what I guessed when I saw Chrome, but I clicked on it mm-hmm. and I didn't see. I didn't see anything specifically. Yeah. No, that's really cool. I like that. It's definitely fun to play around with, and I think it's probably more geared just for kids than a, than a college classroom. But yeah, you, there's definitely ways that you could if you got really creative with it. Imposter syndrome It's the persistent inability to believe that one's success is deserved or has been legitimately achieved as a result of one's own efforts or skills. And if you think I did a good job with that definition, I'm an imposter, Seth wrote that for me. <laughs> While this can occur anywhere, many face some sort of face some form of imposter syndrome during one's time in the field of music and academia. It's definitely not limited to the field of music. You can experience imposter syndrome in anything, uh, including professional stuff or just in your hobbies or your personal life or anything like that. But I feel like it's a pretty common and standard experience to have in in the field of academia. And it's something that I have faced a great deal um, and something that I'm still trying to work through to this day. So I guess Seth and uh, Seth or Libby, do, do either of you guys have uh, experience with, with feeling some imposter syndrome?
0: So no, when I, when I'm by myself, no, but absolutely. I remember starting freshman year and people questioning why I didn't know certain songs or couldn't just like hum random like, Beethoven melodies. it's was like, why? Hmm. Why would I know that? Like, I kind of know the third symphony, but that's because it's... Or, uh, no, sorry, not the third. It would have been the fifth symphony. would have been the one... If you were like, do you know one? Can you hum it? It would be that, but... Like, no, I don't... This isn't what I listen to or what I'm exposed to. And so... Especially probably the first year or two, it was frustrating to think, like, no, I I love music. This is what I focused on in high school. This is what I want to do the rest of my life. Why am I being made to feel like I don't like music or don't know something about music?
1: Mm -hmm. I had a very similar experience with that. Where At at some point, I think my theory professor was like, yeah, it's just like in Brahms 4th. And he could tell that I didn't know what that was, and he was like, "You what, you don't know? Well, you know, one day if you want actually if you actually want to do this, uh, you'll learn it eventually." And so there was like a time in in undergrad when I decided that because I worked as a work study in the library, so while I was just sitting around, I was like, "I'll walk over to the scores and I'll just pull one score off the shelf every time I come into work, and I'll just analyze like a movement of a of a symphony piece at a time and just go through it like that, and maybe that would have been good for me." But I also think that's sort of unrealistic and kind of an insane way to go about learning music theory, especially because I managed to get a master's degree without knowing what any of those are. I still can't. I but, still don't know what worth is.
0: <laughs> Adam, the great composers that we study, they did that exact thing. They just looked at scores of other people all the time. yeah. Libby, what about you?
2: I feel like it's going to sound really dark, but I feel like my entire <laughs> career in music was defined by imposter syndrome, and mm-hmm. that I would say in high school, before I got into music fully full time, I felt no imposter syndrome in like any of my academic stuff, like excelled in that, and just came kind of naturally to me. And the music was the one thing that didn't, and I, for some reason, decided that's what I'm gonna stick with. I'm gonna go that route. Um, huh. Interesting choice. And then in undergrad, certain aspects of it, again, came really naturally to me, like the harmony class side of theory, and the more just academic subjects like music history and um, since I was an ed major, those kind of classes did fine there. And then like ear training, horrible time. Um, And then as a performer, struggled with some really fundamental aspects of saxophone. So I was just like, what am I doing here? But made it through that. And then I was like, okay, so theory, I'm good on, I'm going to go do a master's in that, which I did love, but even then, still can't sing to save my life, all that kind of stuff. So I'm like, "Uh, what? Like half the time, I'm just like, what am I even doing here? Which again, sounds like I'm having a horrible time, but I do love music, loved getting my master's in theory, would love to continue teaching it and all that stuff. Um, I think I'm just in my head about it. I have a much better time when I'm in a room teaching people than when I'm evaluating my own performance Mm. and things. Well, but I
0: think there's also, so I think part of it is when you just get to do things, there's, you don't worry about like, Oh, I can or can't do it. But then depending on the music teachers you have, whatever area it may be, sometimes there still is this toxic vibe that you get of, well, I had a hard time going through this course or whatever that I'm teaching, so you're going to have a hard time. Or, Mm -hmm. like, well, I didn't, you know, really master this until I did all these things, so I can't, like, you're not considered a master or knowledgeable about this because you haven't spent the same amount of time. And it's just... It's not a fun time when you have to deal with those people, whether it's music related or like Adam was saying off the top of, you know, anywhere that, like, well, your opinion's not valuable because you don't have the exact same knowledge that I have. And the reality is, like, you know, it could be really cool that you have different sets of knowledge and we could embrace that, you know, instead of. Like getting into this selective or like elitist environment.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, the what you just said just kind of gave me another thought, which is you have those kind of toxic people. Um, I wouldn't call them mentors because a good mentor doesn't really have that kind of attitude. But you have those kind of toxic, um, people in music. But then on the other hand. I feel like we've all encountered people that are kind of like, sorry, um, you have people that are kind of on the other side of the coin where they are very enthusiastic teachers. They legitimately want the best for you, but some of them are so capable in like music just comes so naturally to them. Every facet of music, it's like, they live it, they breathe it. Um, that they just cannot relate to certain things not coming to people naturally. Yeah. Um, I always honestly struggled more with those type of people um, and both as teachers and as friends. Like one of uh, my roommate in undergrad is one of the most talented musicians I feel like I've ever met. Um, she is just like so deep within her, her musicality and she has one of the craziest ears of anyone I know. And she could rationally understand how I didn't hear things the same way she did and how I would struggle with certain things. But it's like on a certain level, she couldn't really empathize because she didn't know what it felt like to not be able to do those things. She always could do them. And -hmm. you have teachers that are like that as well. And even if they legitimately want the best for you, they can throw out suggestions, but they don't really know what it's like. Um, Yeah. And those are I, those are honestly even harder for me to deal with because I'm like I know you're so nice, you care so much, but like just get out of my face. You don't know.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, not to not to name names, but our advisor was kind of one of those people.
2: That is who I was thinking of, right? Exactly. exactly. And
1: that our advisor, like, no, no sacrifice was too great. He like every like the entire arc of his life was making every possible sacrifice (laughs) to get to where he is today to, to be able to, he was a a brilliant performer and musician and also just a brilliant theorist and writer and also like a teacher and stuff like that. Like he was great at every, every part of it that you sort of think like, I want to be good at that. He kind of was good at all those things and he adored his students and he cared a lot about us and he really did want the best for us. But it always made you question yourself. Like if I'm not making the same sacrifices that this guy did, or I'm not able to play my instrument at the level that this guy can, like what am I ever going to do? Like how, how am I going to reach this position that I also want to have? Like one day I'd like to be like him, but I'm on a completely different track in life than he is or that he was, you know? And that, I found that to be very intimidating.
0: Well, and with that, I think there's like, even once we got into degree programs and it was like, okay, next stop, next step job wise, here's where you could end up that it still felt like, but I don't really have a a lot of options to use or something like there's, Mm -hmm. I only see one route and that's where I think part of the frustration is like, if you said, "Yeah, I play trumpet and I'd like to do that as a job," and then you look at Louis Armstrong or Miles Davis or something, it's like, "Okay, well, if I want to be a good trumpet player, that's what I have to be." Then like that's it's an impossible task to look at and be like, "That's, you know, that's what I'm trying to live up to." Mm-hmm. Yeah, and not understanding like, "Hey, if you want to play trumpet, you can make a living." teaching lessons. You can go find a daytime job as like a band director, or you can find a church job. That's going to pay you. You can, you don't have to teach at all. You could just go gig in the right city and just play all these things. Like there's so many options for you to do that and be a professional, but not the greatest ever professional. And I think that's, I don't know if that's like an, an American, thing where we have like all these heroes that we glorify and like they never struggled on the way to the top or something but I I think that's just a bigger problem at large of like well if I'm not great at this how do I just keep being okay with doing it and just being you know above average average just enjoying it
1: mm-hmm.
2: yeah I was having I, the same thought Seth where I feel like music is just a microcosm for. Just the world at large where a lot of people struggle because we have this one model for success just in general in life. Right. Like This is what it means to be successful. And in music, a lot of the time the area you're in will have one idea of, all right, if you're going to go get a music degree, for example, here's your three options. And if you're not good enough to cut it, in one of those three and given how competitive music is if you're not the best of the best in one of those three areas like good luck you're SOL like you're and so I feel like one of the best combatants to imposter syndrome is just variety because I felt like the more variety I saw in how people made careers in music the more I was like I could do that I do have those skills, and this person has used those skills fully, so maybe I could too.
0: Right.
1: Um, let's break away just from the, the pure music side of it for a second and talk about the academia part, because mm-hmm. I feel like definitely for me, it, like, Libby and I have talked about this a lot, so I feel like I can speak for her and say that, like, the research part of this also got to us a lot is that true (laughs) can i say that
2: well so you and i are two different sides of the coin i think i used that metaphor earlier where you're an idea man and i'm an executor so like you come up with the ideas all day i can't come up with a single idea but if someone gives me something to write about like boom done so like i feel like we really struggled with two different aspects of research yeah i guess
1: i meant that like both of us love teaching and we loved the pedagogy and we loved interacting with students and getting to be in a classroom like that.
2: But being and, told to write journal articles.
1: Yeah, looking at the, the barrier of entry into the positions that we wanted being you have to do years of research and, you know, hundreds of pages of writing before you can get into like a tenure track to become a music theory professor at the kind of institution that you want to be at. I, that's not what I want to do. I'm not passionate about the research. And so, like, and
2: just to add on the constant barrage of, if you don't present something, you yeah. will not get into a doctoral <laughs> program. Right, it was burned into my brain. Yeah, that I was like on this ticking clock of this countdown of I have to present by this time, or I will never even be looked at.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I think that's like true some of some of what I feel with the imposter syndrome came from myself like I think that when I when I think about presenting presenting research really scares me because I don't want to be wrong I don't want to go in front of a group of people and be wrong out loud that I did not get from my professors I did not get that from the institution or from the process that's something that just came from inside of myself but it comes out through the research process. I was scared mm-hmm. to say things in my thesis that I was pretty, like, 99% sure were true because I kept feeling like there's one person out there who knows Stravinsky more than anyone else on the planet, and if they ever read my thing, they'll read that one sentence where I made a definitive statement and be like, oh, well, that's just not true. And then I'm I'm wrong, and wrong is like this brand that I can't escape. Yeah, at exactly. At a conference
2: and it turns into an expose. <laughs>
1: Right, exactly. that That's what I'm afraid of. And so, like, I think the example I always think of is that I was pretty sure I found the... I was working on the only Stravinsky piece with a full 12-tone row that used, like, the standard transpositions of that row. I'm, I'm still, to this day, pretty confident that that's the one.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But I'm not... I don't know everything about Stravinsky. So there's always the off chance that Joe Strauss rolls up and is like, actually, you you done messed up. There's another one. Like, you blew it. Um, and so, like, that really bothers me, and that gets to me. And that's just, like, that, that's, like, the very literal sense of imposter syndrome, where I can study this music as much as I did and still feel like I don't understand it enough to to present about it.
2: That's not just internal, though. I think academia fosters that sort of attitude where... You, it's not always true, but um, you can really get into the environment where you cannot be wrong, and yeah. it's no, not true. so simple as saying, I was wrong, this person is actually right, and we move on. There's certain circles where you say something and you're wrong, and basically your name is ruined. Like, mm-hmm. I feel like you can see that through research through time
1: and this episode is coming out after a long time of not a lot of these episodes coming out (laughs) and like at least for me a big part of that was that as i got closer to thinking about being a music theorist or a musician as a career it scared me to think about putting things into the world and have other people in my field listen to them and critique my ideas. Like when this stopped being the three of Mm -hmm. us hanging out and became like something that we were doing or contributing or commenting on, it became very scary because I wanted to always have the right answers. And sometimes it felt like I was being more of like a passenger in the world of music theory rather than like a contributor, if that makes Mm -hmm. sense. I don't know. It, it felt really scary to show up and say things on the internet that people could actually listen to and, and respond to. In the same way that like it scared me to do my thesis, well, then suddenly I also transferred that onto the podcast, which is another place that like people can listen to my ideas, and that like that really scared me. That's why, like I, it was easier for me to start a movie podcast about dumb bad movies. No one cares what I say, as opposed to this, which is ostensibly my career, and people that I want to make connections with and work with and collaborate with one day could listen to this. Yeah. Like that's just a fear of life at that point. Like
0: I mean that just means bit.
1: I'm afraid of doing things.
0: But I guess like like if you remember us talking to like the score guys or when we had uh, Dan Elfic on the podcast or uh, we have an interview that's locked and loaded, and will probably come out after Wink. this one. <laughs> um, but like, you know, we we've talked to people. Uh, we even talked to uh, what was Ryan's last name from Dynamo?
2: I don't remember.
0: Uh, uh, great yeah, question. I can't remember it off the top. But like, you know, we've we've had several interview guests, and you know, from all of them, it felt like they were like, yeah, no, this was a fun thing. Like we were really talking about music. Like you guys had good questions and stuff. There wasn't anybody that I felt like was like, yeah, you guys don't know what you're doing. You should, <laughs> you should stop. <laughs> I no, regret it's, it's coming true. on. How can yeah. we <laughs> back out of this? so, but I definitely know what you're saying of like, you know, if there aren't enough positive experiences showing you like day in and day out of like, Hey, you got this, keep pushing through, keep going. And if mostly it's, like, inner inner dialogue telling you, like, are you sure that this is for you? That, you know, it can be overwhelming and um, very uh, disheartening.
2: Yeah, I think that when you mix music as a hobby with academia and music as a profession, Mm -hmm. at least for me, the more academics that got mixed in the less music for fun and music as a hobby that I would keep in my life and when you're not doing it for fun it starts to feel there's so much pressure and I feel like the more I could mix in just anything music related for fun it made me a lot more confident in my musicianship and even just the theory side of things. So like right now, not doing much music related, but if I was, let's say wanted to put out an article, like I just got that motivation, I'm gonna get back into it and I wanna put out an article, I feel like it'd be a good idea for me to also start like playing my instrument again also, or like play in a little group, something like that. Cause making music for fun helps mm. reinforce why I'm like qualified to talk about it. And yeah. when I don't include that, like for the entire semester I was writing my thesis, that's all it was, and I was like, "Man, I like I'm not <laughs> cut out for this. I I've never even heard music like <laughs>
1: I didn't even like the music I wrote about. I liked the ideas in the music I wrote about. Was it enjoyable right. to listen to? Not at all.
2: Like yeah. there's no fun in that. Yeah, it's just so much more pressure when it's just, you're just trying to present expertise. There's not like any joy in it, which I love the music I wrote my thesis on. So that wasn't an issue, but it's like, I had never performed it. I had never even seen it performed live. Um, It's like, I was just, I had this idea that I was proud of. But from that point, it was all just, okay, I have to prove that like, I'm good enough with this paper yeah
1: for me just a lot of things have been going on in like my own personal life that are making me feel better about like my career and the the stuff mm-hmm. that I want to be doing um, I like I for one thing I just start, I started seeing a therapist uh, I'm in a more secure place in my life like financially and personally than I have been in the last two to five years mm-hmm. Um, and so just like a lot of things like that. I think when also your own life and, and self-confidence gets more secure, it's it's easier to do those other things. And so like I am sort of looking for opportunities. Like we're doing a podcast right now. Um, I'm more willing to think about a future working in academia and working with music theory than I have been basically since I finished my thesis because I'm feeling better about myself as a person than I was when I finished my thesis.
0: Yeah. But I think part of that is also like Livy was bringing up of um, the masters program is so short you're like i need to do all of this work in 2 years and then okay well if i'm going to teach at a college or something i need a phd so mm-hmm. i like if i'm not in a phd as soon as i finish like what am i doing and so uh, you know i think like i had things to do and but i think that that was a frustrating thing for you adam of like okay well what is the next step like? Right. What do I do? So. And because I got so stuck in the
1: thesis, I didn't do all the articles and stuff that you need to do to get into a doctoral program. It's so, a yeah, it was a big mess. I even I even applied to a doctoral program last year and got rejected because all I have is my thesis, which I still am pretty happy with. Like I think it's a good thesis, but you need yeah. more than that. And so you know, I have to work myself up to that at some point so I can do that.
0: Yeah.
2: I don't know. I think that imposter syndrome is so tied into your mental health. Very mm-hmm. similar experience, Adam, where it's like my mental health was at a bit of a low during mm-hmm. our master's program. Yeah. I feel like Adam and I were just hanging out in the depths for uh, that for last sure. year after Seth left. That's
1: not a metaphor. The the graduate assistant <laughs> office was called the depths.
2: There you go. It was a janitor's <laughs> closet for everyone it, who didn't know. It, it did wasn't exactly the bringing joy to my life, it, yeah. but um, we would just it, sit it in there. Like, right? That oh my like god i wasn't i wasn't doing great the stress piled on made me feel less great i feel less great about myself so i feel less qualified to do anything and it's like this yep. big spiral yeah. But stepping away from it and also tackling my own mental health similar experience to adam just kind of getting my life together now i'm like hey i have something to bring to the table like mm-hmm. I have self-worth, which yeah, sounds exactly. so dark, but it's like, I have, yeah, I have, it's true. I have like, worth. Like <laughs> two months ago,
1: I had the same thing where I was like, hey, you know what? I'm proud of the work that I did in my yeah. graduate degree and I'm proud of my thesis and I have ideas and it's some, someday I might be wrong and then I will learn more and I'll stop being wrong. But like, I can do this and I deserve to do this. Yeah. Well, it's like,
2: I kind of realized that it, I think it had more, which we've, this would just go along with everything we've been saying. The imposter syndrome I was experiencing uh, as a musician had way more to do with me than anyone around me and more than my actual skills and more to do with Mm -hmm. my mindset because (laughs) um, the job I have now is not music related whatsoever. It's just a job I have to make money. And um, even there where I never struggled with it, there's a little bit of imposter syndrome still. And then the more I got my life together, I'm like, nah, I'm more than qualified to do this, like yeah. I'm knocking this out of the park. And so <laughs> it's like, I realized like, no, I am actually doing a good job. And kind of as those feelings came up, it was like a little bit more motivation recently to get back into music stuff um, and just kind of finding the joy in that, which is the whole reason I got into it in the first place.
1: So let us know have you ever experienced imposter syndrome we've got a twitter account we're at ttbi pod on twitter and there are some other places that you can find us but no one ever does uh but let us know uh, what are some ways or some places that you experienced imposter syndrome and also like what are some things that you did to work through that or get over it if you have Uh, we'd love to hear from you
2: yeah
0: All right, I hope you guys have enjoyed the episode so far. Um, There was a lot of discussion on there. I hope, hopefully you took something out of it. We're going to move into a new closing segment um, where I kind of just ask Adam and Livy for advice because, similar to the imposter syndrome, um, there's things in this world that I don't know and I will never know, and I've come to accept that. So um, I'm asking Adam and Livy for help, and... Maybe on different weeks we'll switch to one of them asking the other two of us about something. So, at some point, I remember seeing that an artist named Machine Gun Kelly had a diss track or beef with Eminem, don't fully remember what it was, just remember that it was a thing. Um, Not unreasonable, but, you know, whatever. So, I guess I thought it was new... White rapper calling out the old white rapper. They both have like neon. I do believe bleached. it
1: does work by Highlander rules.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I mean, at least for the two of them, that's what I thought it was, um, and, and I assumed it was, you know, just like a publicity stunt of like, hey, if I just call out the biggest name and like I do it on YouTube, I'll get a million hits. He might have to respond to it. He probably will, because, I mean, sometimes he can't help himself. Like, whatever. So, anyways. Another morning, I I downloaded Tony Hawk, because it was free on PlayStation. So, I'm kind of, like, messing around on there, playing it, whatever. And this song comes on, and I was like, this is a very emo song. And then I saw the name pop up of Machine Gun Kelly, and I was like, wow. Is this what his music sounds like? Because it reminded me of like Fallout Boy, Red Jumpsuit, Apparatus, or like borderline Post Malone, except like a more moody Post Malone, but definitely not Eminem. And so I just guys, does anybody know why that beef was a thing or am I making it up?
1: I don't know why it was a thing, and I don't really listen to Machine Gun Kelly, but I'm pretty sure he was a rapper and then got dunked on so hard he had to switch genres. <laughs> that's, that's the understanding that Twitter led me to believe after that happened.
0: Well, that, that's very funny. I, I guess that makes sense. So I did... Only one
1: of them gets to wear Megan Fox's blood, though. So, like, mm-hmm. who's really winning?
2: <laughs> Eminem is.
0: Oh, yeah. Well, right.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> I just also like since since I heard it on Tony Hawk, I was like it does does all of his music sound like this? Is this just a one-hit thing he's got going on? And the first like as soon as you click on a song and the little like mini clip that's playing on Spotify is him with a pink guitar, and it was just like this guy ever called out Eminem for something? <laughs> what is going on? I was annoyed because he did a music video
1: where it looks like he's in the hallway from Twin Peaks, and that was just some sort of sacrilege to me. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't like that at all. Get out of there. It's not yours.
0: No, that absolutely makes sense. Um, well, thank you, Adam. Um, I mean, I think, I think that basically answers it, right? Uh, Um, His
1: new album is called Mainstream Sellout. So it seems like he's leaning into it.
0: I mean, again, he's got Megan Fox's blood somewhere on his body. So (laughs) I like he'll probably be fine. You know, I, I would argue that he has more money than I do. Maybe not more happiness, but definitely more money. Adam you were looking so intently and I feel like you have something to add
1: no I I really don't I was looking at all of his album covers and everything on Spotify and decided I don't think I ever really need to pursue what this guy's into no
0: no no no. Um, but it looked like you were reading something and were very interested and engaged and I was like Adam might have like a a one liner something for us to end on but I do not
1: hold the skeleton key to Machine Gun Kelly
0: (laughs) um anyways thank you guys so much for listening and we'll catch you next time